All right, and we are live. Good morning, evening, wherever you are. Today we're going to speak about compulsive behavior uh, around porn addiction, but also general laziness and really any compulsive behavior, which I would define as any time that you are doing something that's against your higher intentions. So it could be doing something you don't want to do, like jerking off to porn, substance abuse, Netflix abuse, sugar abuse, um, an unconscious emotional pattern you keep repeating over and over again with loved ones or non-loved ones, um, or uh, not doing what you want to do, which we could put under the general umbrella of laziness. Uh, I put laziness in quotes because I don't actually think people are inherently lazy. I think what we call lazy is actually a fear-based reaction, but something that we all um, are affected by periodically. And uh, we'll speak about that. I'm going to speak about porn addiction specifically because it's such an acute and pervasive example of compulsive behavior uh, that particularly affects male brains. But I think because it's so pervasive, also affects the uh, reality of everyone who interacts with male humans, which is everyone, right? Um, in general, the reason why I'm so into this topic or I want to speak about this is that this is one of the pieces that prevents someone from what I would call a high fidelity life. Uh, fidelity, the definition is faithfulness, right? We talk about it when it comes to cheating, usually in relationships. Fidelity also is a term we use in music production. When a recording is high fidelity, it's very accurately and precisely recreating the sound of the live music. A low fidelity is the opposite. It's like a fuzzy sound. And um, I like this metaphor for life in that uh, there's, there's more to life than just being true or not true with what you want or what's, what's within you, right? There's, like a, there's a level of precision that comes with truthfulness or faithfulness to what's inside of you. And for anyone who, um, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, I did want to do that, so I'm doing it. Or I, I did want to do this job or this life path or be in this relationship or do this action. And like, it's, it's easy to think of it in like a binary sense of like, I want to do it or I'm not, or this is true for me or it's not. But there's actually degrees of truthfulness and like to the precision you're doing, like the exact thing is like the intensity you're living your life. It's like the amount you're turning up the definition on your life, which, uh, which when it comes to things like compulsive behavior, um, it's a way of like making everything fuzzy. Like when you, when you fall into traps of compulsive behavior, uh, it's like, it's not that you're necessarily lying to yourself all the time, although you might be, it's like you're making your reality fuzzier. So it's harder to do things with precision and like anything of quality, creative quality, relationship quality, quality of life. Like the moments that you really like, like, fuck yeah, this is, this is life happening requires that high fidelity reality. There's a huge difference between amazing experiences that you'll cherish forever. And then like, oh yeah, that was pretty good. You know, I went to work and went home and watched Netflix for the last three months. That was okay. That's what I wanted. I would say it's a low fidelity reality for most people. Before we jump in, a couple announcements. We have a great podcast coming up on Thursday um, with a gentleman named Jeremy Lipkowitz. He's a meditation teacher. And uh, it related to this topic, actually, uh, he used mindfulness and Buddhism to overcome his porn addiction. He had a very severe porn addiction and he found Buddhism as a way to get out of it. So in that episode, he and I speak about uh, porn addiction and compulsions from a more mindfulness Buddhism's perspective. Today, I'm going to speak about it from other perspectives, um, but it's a great episode. And especially if you're dealing with compulsions, I recommend you listen to that too. That'll be out on uh, Thursday. Also, if you caught my last announcement on my 
general life stuff, um, general business stuff, I should say. Uh, I'm going, I'm undergoing like a whole rehaul of everything. Um, so until then, since some things are janky on my websites and things are going to change in a couple weeks, uh, my archetype class is half off. It's only $49. It's available. The discount is available at rwando.com slash archetype dash 50 dash five zero. From now until the, my new website's up, the class is half off just because you're going to deal with some new logins in the middle of it. You still get the free coaching session um, if that's still available there. Third announcement is uh, if you listen to the podcast or if you've been, you may have caught back in the fall, I sent out an open invitation to anyone to come to Chiang Mai and hang out with me. I was uh, humbled by the number of messages I got. I found out there's a lot more female listeners than I realized in the podcast. So that was cool. Um, but also, it was really awesome that a handful of guys actually made it out to Chiang Mai. We ended up hanging out and had some great conversations. Uh, I hope I was useful to them. We ended up working out a little bit. Some of the, I mean, at least one guy we worked out. One guy even helped me dig my fire pit in my, in my backyard. It was like a lot of fun. I'm going to make the same invitation to anybody, but not for Thailand in August, unless uh, the world goes crazy, which it might again, of course. Um, plan is to go to Georgia, Georgia and Europe, not, not Georgia, the state in America. For anyone who can and wants to get out of the country or, you know, wants to travel a little bit, uh, Georgia is very inexpensive. It's a very cool place. It seems like a, one of the safer places in the world. Uh, if you're American, you want to get out of America, I invite you to come there. You can hang out with me. Uh, it was a great experience last time I sent out this invite. Um, and I want to say, if anybody's listening and this is interesting to them, and they have media skills, please message me on Instagram because I've started building a team with some of my friends who are also podcasters and we're doing some cool things. And if you want to travel to Georgia and hang out with me and you have some media skills, there might be some part-time employment available. Final thing, if you're listening to the recording, um, all of these discussions were generated on the Masculine Underground Facebook group. If you search Masculine Underground on Facebook or type forum.masculineunderground.com you'll find the group where I record these live I mean some people are listening right now and um, I just want to send a thank you to a couple people uh, who reached out to me about stuff I mini story before we jump in I yesterday was the full moon my personal silly uh, farcical religion has me take the day off on the full moon I shouldn't say that it's just what I've it's my personal mythology which I'll actually talk about today um, so I take the day off. I did a bunch of acid with my friends. It was fun. But one of the things that I grappled with, and I kind of had a, head, had a heavy trip for part of it, was this idea of content creation um, and like how I loathe it. Right? I, I don't like the idea of putting out more noise on the internet. I try to encourage people through my content, ironically, sometimes to get off their screens. Re the reason why I really like podcasts is that you can listen and actually do things in the real world and get off your screen. Anyway, um, I get hired periodically by this dating YouTube channel to make dating videos for them. They, they pay me and they give me topics. I talk about stuff. I think it's good stuff, but it's like, you know, it's like top five tips stuff, like things that don't really resonate with how I want to express myself, but I do it. And I was um, looking at their channel, looking at some of the videos I made for them over the years. And I was like, wow, some of my videos for them have like 4 million views. And I'm like, shit, like if I did that for myself, I'd have a multi-million view channel. Um, so I started thinking about it. And I started grappling with this and when I was tripping. I was like, shit, like, but I don't want to be another person just pumping stuff out, like pumping like low attention span tips to the internet. 
And uh, it was like this thing. I was like, what do I do? How did I end up in this situation? I was going back and forth, like feeling gross. Like It's like every time in my life I've tried to productize my expression, I've lost my interest. I've gotten, um, I've gotten frustrated and dejected and I've lost my fire for it. And then I was tripping. I was on this hike with my friends. I kind of separated from them. Their dog caught up with me. And I were walking on this river and I ended up getting onto this peak, like this big boulder in the middle of the river. I don't know why this came to me in that moment, but I was like, Oh yeah, I got into this work because I was suffering at one point. I had like these, ex- I had various existential crises in my life, partly because of uh, compulsive behavior and low fidelity living or really fear. And it caused me a lot of suffering. And that's why I got into spirituality and self growth and all that stuff and why I'm in the career that I'm in right now. And I was like, wow, like, yeah, I mean, if life is a trip, which I think it is, and when I'm tripping, it's very easy to see it that way. And uh, people fall into bad trips all the time. People get into these headspaces, these reality tunnels where everything over them is negative, where like their reality is fuzzy and low fidelity, and they're not able to like live their truth. And we're gonna talk about normalizing reality later in this episode. And I was like, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing it. I, I stood on top of this boulder. I was like, oh yeah, people are suffering. <laughs> like I yelled this out. Um, but it actually reminded me the reason why I do all of this is because I know people are having bad trips. I think a lot of men are specifically are having bad trips because of porn addiction. And a lot of people are having bad trips because of bad trips through life because of compulsive behavior. And that's why I'm doing this for them, for you. Um, so oh, I want to say thank you, but I still get dejected sometimes. I still get confused. Like, I don't like this idea of like pumping out content and like, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Something I need to get over, honestly, or I need to find a way that works. Um, so I want to say thank you to a couple people. I want to give a personal shout out to Fabian who reached out to me and said some nice things, but also like, you know, helped me remember why I do this, which is for people who hopefully can get stuff out of this and live a higher fidelity life. So I'm going to take a sip of coffee. We're going to jump in. It is 7.30 in the morning for me. Okay. All right. So again, what is compulsion? Compulsion and compulsive behavior is anytime you are somehow doing this, this thing that is not with your higher intention. It could be doing stuff you don't want to do, which you know is negatively impacting your life, or not doing what you want to do. And um, <clears throat> I think that for porn, we're going to speak about porn addiction specifically because, as an example of this, as an acute example that affects a lot of men, I think both compulsive behavior and porn addiction is a highlight example of this. Video games being another thing that is greatly affecting men because it taps into a circuitry that's in the male brain that uh, is meant for good things, but can easily be hijacked by these things such as porn. And I think it's one of the reasons that are related to why male mental health issues are on the rise. So I wanna speak on that. Uh, but compulsions obviously affect everyone in all forms. And I do wanna speak about, because uh, the principles of overcoming compulsion are universal, the overall thing that I think affects everyone is what we might call laziness in quotes. Same type of fear-based response. All right. So I want to talk about addiction first. So if you happen to catch the episode um, on addiction that I had with uh, guest uh, Mark Lewis, who wrote the book Biology of Desire, great episode on addiction specifically speaks about, um, he's got a great book also, Biology of Desire. He speaks about the three different ways that people have modeled addiction uh prior to aa i mean most of human history like if someone drank too much they were called a drunk it was assumed that if someone drank too much they had a a willpower a willpower problem 
And you can see this with all common addictions, like even with porn, when internet porn was new, if someone was jerking off too much, yeah, we were just like, ah, oh, he's a wanker, right? Like, like it was just like, it's assumed that he just has some lack of willpower. It's his fault. Blame him. It's just, it's just his decision to ruin his own life. Uh, later on, or more recently, we've culturally adopted this um, model of addiction being a disease. So this is what AA pushes and most recovery centers who I think are largely uh, money-driven to, to throw out this idea like, oh, you, you're addicted, you have this disease. I mean, even NoFap, which I think is overall a great movement for getting guys off porn, I think they go too, too far on this idea that porn addiction is, is a disease that you need to cure because then people go through their life thinking, oh, I'm diseased, right? There's something wrong with me. And uh, it's, um, it's not very useful. The, the one that I think is the model of addiction, I think is the most useful for actually overcoming it is uh, what Mark Lewis suggested, which is the desire model. So the gist is that we have all these mechanisms in our nervous system that we've evolved to have for important purposes to achieve various genetic goals, uh, basically survival and replication and other things too, right? But survival and replication, we're down to the primal level. So we're talking about compulsive behavior. We're talking about stuff that is beneath our intention. If we could control our behavior 100%, there'd be no compulsions. You'd just be like, oh, well, I'm going to work on this, and then you go do it. It's like, I'm never going to watch porn or drink, and you, know, you just go do that. Um, obviously, that's, we're more complex than that because we have these layers and layers of primal programming. The desire model is, is basically, the, basic, the best example would be with sugar. We're, we've all evolved to really enjoy sugar. There's a huge reward in sugar. The reason being that our, for our ancestors, at least, if they ever came across a uh, a, a dense source of sugar, let's say blueberries or any sort of fruit, bananas, whatever, they should eat all of it, right? They should, they should consume all the bananas because who knows when they're going to see bananas again. It's a great source of energy and then they'll move on. Maybe they won't see bananas or blueberries again for another week. So eat all the bananas you can. Also, like if you, if you just eat bananas, eventually you're going to get full after a couple bananas and then you're done and then you don't have to worry about like the blood sugar spikes or whatever. That's how we've evolved. Problem is nowadays we have uh, we've evolved to have this mechanism that's now being met by an artificial or unnatural um, piece of environment, so, uh, processed sugar. So now we have all these obese people just like rewarding their natural circuit. Like eat sugar is supposed to be good for you. It's supposed to be nutrient dense. Anything with sugar in nature has a lot of micronutrients too. But now we have people getting fat because they're stuffing their face with donuts with a mechanism that was meant for something more virtuous. Uh, so that's, that's basically what happens with porn addiction. We're going to talk about porn addiction in a second. That's basically what happens with all compulsive behavior. And I think this is the healthier way to look at it because then it's, you can see like, oh, I have something that actually, it's not that I'm broken. I have something that works. It's just like being met by the wrong stimulus. It's like being fed by the wrong, my, my keyhole is having the wrong key put in it. So it's opening the wrong door. I know I'm mixing analogies. Um, but so one of the key pieces of the natural environment, if you think of, you know, with our blueberry analogy, uh, the way things are supposed to be, if we're actually living the way that our, uh, our nervous systems have evolved, we shouldn't end up in those things. The main thing when it comes to addictive behavior is that we naturally have evolved to be pack animals. We're supposed to live in tribes. We're supposed to be in communities where we know a lot of people and they know us and, and we're part of this larger whole. We're part of this super organism. We are extremely social animals. Social media is an example of that. It's kind of a toxic example of that. But what, what's happened in the modern era, before we even talk about technology, what's happened in the modern era is that because of the evolution of consumerism, 
which basically the, the tenet of consumerism is if you can uh, collect enough money for yourself, you can buy all your needs, you don't need people anymore. So we have all these people who um, uh, live by themselves in these little boxes in cities, working for themselves, thinking only for themselves. And that is a, it's not a natural way to live, which is why people are prone to addiction. Um, if you think of like people as like a super organism, or this is actually an addiction model, like if you are isolated, you're more prone to addictive behaviors because we're supposed to be part of a greater whole. So um, one recovered addict, um, recovered alcoholic explained it to me this way. It's like a cell in your human body is supposed to consume nutrients and grow, right? But if it loses its sense in the greater whole, it starts to consume more than it needs. It starts to multiply more than it needs. That's what a cancer is. A cancer is a part of your body that has become disconnected from the greater organism. So now it's like consuming a little bit too much. It doesn't know its place anymore. It consumes and consumes and consumes until it kills itself and kills everything around it. it might seem like an extreme view when you're talking about porn addiction or cigarettes or something that, you know, it's not like heroin is not going to kill you uh, from doing it, but it will throw your life away. You'll, it will throw away the life that you want to live, which is, I'd say, the equivalent. It's just a slower burn. Um, and the other thing that, I mean, related to that, what causes addiction uh, in a lot of people are unnatural, unhealthy circumstances growing up. That, that's kind of like the root of a lot of um, addiction recovery models when it comes to substance abuse. Like most people will, will say, I will know that they had an uh, abusive parent or an alcoholic parent, and that's what leads to that. But I would say for things that are more common and less acute, like porn addiction or even laziness, or I mean, anything that's like more common, it's it's not like... Blaming your parents or your environment, I think, doesn't really do anything. Even if your parents incepted you or you were born into an environment that encouraged um, fearful behavior, it's not effective. It doesn't, it doesn't help you to blame anything else. It's just to recognize, oh, I was born into an environment that did not match the way my nervous system evolved. One way to uh, get back on track is to put myself in a situation that does match the way my nervous system evolved. And I'm going to talk about at the latter half of this episode, I'll share five like specific things that can be used to get over porn addiction, but also I think any compulsive behavior. So now I want to speak about porn specifically as an example, but also because it's uh, probably the most common thing for guys. Um, and I just want to say uh, anyone listening live, feel free to drop in your questions. I'm happy to stop and answer them. Um, okay, so porn... Uh, a lot of people, and I've spoken on the podcast about how porn affects the brain, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. I'll speak at the high level. And if you're watching this, I assume you probably know that it is neg has a negative impact on your brain. Um, we'll speak at it on a high level. Uh, the reason why porn is so negative on the male brain specifically, right? Like, obviously women watch porn. You very rarely hear of a female porn addict. Why? Because porn is the way it's designed is uh, it, it fits in very well to part of the keys that are in the brain of a human, right? Like we think of like our neurotransmitters uh, have a key. Uh, we have a, a receptor for every neurotransmitter, whether it's testosterone or dopamine or anything, oxytocin, we're going to be speaking about those. And we have these neurotransmitters that fit. Um, uh, porn sticks a lot of those keys in the lock, but not in the way that is natural to us. Again, it's kind of like donuts rather than blueberries. Um, but for men specifically, it's a couple of things that are different about male brains. 
One is that male brains are prone to sexual imprinting far more than female brains. When it comes to sexuality and arguably when it comes to everything, uh, male brains lose their plasticity sometime after puberty. This is why you see fetishes more commonly with guys, right? Um, female brains, and this, this is not just for humans, it goes across species. Female brains tend to be more plastic throughout life when it comes to sexuality, which is why it is it's something people notice, but it's also, and there might be a cultural aspect to it, but it's also a biological aspect that women tend to be more fluid with their sexuality. Uh, you know, I'm mean, going to get into examples, but um, fetishes are something you see in, in men a lot more. Like if a, if a guy sees a, a random thing, a flashlight or a clothespin, the first time he masturbates, he might get off on that, especially if like there was some shame uh, stuck on that. I spoke about that in the shame episode. One interesting example, I think, is with non-humans, they did this experiment where they tried to mate goats and sheep because they're kind of similar, but not really. And m most animals will not mate with uh, a different kind if there's their own kind available. But what they did is they, in this experiment, they took the male sheep and they put them with the female goats uh, from a young age. And they did the opposite with female sheep and male goats. And they had them grow up together so that they would mate. And they got them, you got the males and the females of these different species to mate. And then they put them back with each other. They put the sheep with the sheep and the goats with the goats. And they found that the females would immediately switch back. It's like the females were like, oh, okay, I was, you know, I was having sex with male goats, but now here's a male sheep. This is better. I'm, I'm down with that. But the males were stuck on whatever they were imprinted on. The male sheep were like, no, I'm, I'm a goat fucker. I'm, I'm stuck with that. Because the male brain, even with non-humans, once it gets imprinted, it's very it's a lot a lot less plastic it kind of gets stuck on a certain thing which is why we see fetishes in um women more than we see fetishes in men more than women um another thing with the male brain is that and this this uh comes from one of my coaches he's been on the podcast uh one of my coaches from a long time ago great teacher ken blackman uh he pointed out that men tend to jerk off to porn men tend to masturbate to porn women tend to masturbate to vibrators why? Because the, you know, quote unquote nutrient that men need is to experience sympathetic arousal. Men, um, men experience uh, direct arousal, personal arousal very easily. You wake up with a boner before you even know what jerking off is. Maybe you're touching yourself. Not that women don't do that too, but it's very, um, it's very easy to access personal pleasure when you have a male body. Uh, women tend to, to uh, have a harder time with direct stimulation uh, typically, um, but what they are very high in is sympathetic arousal. Most women are very quick to feel the arousal of their partner or to become selfless in a way that could be detrimental to them even. So that's why women go to vibrators typically because the vibrator gives them that thing that they're missing, which is a lot of direct stimulation. Um, and uh, men go to porn because, you know, when you think about it, if you have typical man hands, your hands probably don't feel that good sensation wise. But there's the experience of seeing a woman on a screen in orgasm that tricks your brain into thinking, oh, we're doing something good for our biology. We are giving a woman pleasure. This is great. This is great. And it floods you with all this dopamine that makes you feel for a moment that you're doing something important, but not really because you're getting an incomplete chemical cocktail. Uh, if you caught my episode on, on this when I was in the sex cults when I was younger, uh, that's when I met Ken Blackman. Um, he taught me, he's one of the people that taught me the orgasmic meditation practice, uh, which is a practice where a man typically strokes a woman's clitoris. I'm not promoting this by any means, but um, it was one interesting thing when I was in that world. I noticed naturally that my desire to watch porn disappeared. And one of the explanations is that I was, by pleasuring a woman selflessly, 
I was getting the oxytocin or the connection need that I had needed from porn but never could get from porn because there's no physical contact. And uh, women are drawn to that practice because they get this direct stimulation, so everybody wins. Um, but that, that, that brings me to one of the points of how to overcome this is that, well, first, uh, with the incomplete chemical cocktail, from a male perspective, watching porn, there are two things that, there are two rewards in our natural circuitry that men are supposed to get, really everyone's supposed to get, we'll talk about men for a second, men are supposed to get from uh, a sexual experience, right? I mean, obviously our genes want us to seek uh, sex with uh, people we can breed with, attractive women who we can inseminate and make babies. That's what our genes want us to do or have evolved to have us do or have evolved us to have us do, to be specific. Um, and we're supposed to get two rewards. Obviously, there's pleasure, dopamine. Pleasure comes from stimulation. Pleasure also comes, dopamine specifically, comes from uh, novelty too. Men, because we can create unlimited sperm, do get an, a reward from experiencing many women. A lot of guys have that natural impulse. Not to say that you should follow it or not. It's up to you. But it is, it is a reward circuit that men have in, uh, in larger magnitude than women. Oh, this, that's arguable. I mean, in Sex at Dawn, they talked about how um, one of the reasons why women would be driven to multiple partners is that she can collect the, a lot of sperm and get the best one. But women have only one egg. If she can like land the best man ever, genetically at least, there's a, an incentive for her to just have sex with him to make sure she gets that sperm to inseminate her egg. A man, on the other hand, uh, his, his genes at least get a reward from being with a lot of women. So when we talk about porn, porn gives you an, an unnatural way to experience a ton of novelty. You can have like 500 tabs open of every type of woman, of every type of porn, in every situation at the click of a mouse uh, without having to physically move your body or do anything in the world that would have you earn that kind of attention from that many women. And so it gives you the dopamine in like, you know, everything on the, on the internet. Um, because the internet world um, does not require us to move around with our bodies, um, it can give us a highly unnatural level of novelty that we can't get in the real world. Like to see what you see on a typical Facebook feed or like on your browser, browser if you have multiple tabs open especially, is so much more than you would see if you're walking around in the world. If you were to see like 10 web pages worth of information, it would take you maybe 10 hours to like, walk all over all over the earth and like look at different things to get that mission even even if you did that you probably wouldn't get that much information when you're sitting at your computer disconnecting from your body because all of your attention is going to a screen now you're getting all of this novelty one of the reasons why when people are on their phone their their posture usually gets weird and they stop breathing is because they've their attention their being has left their physical body so they don't notice it anymore and has gone into this in, interactive uh, or this um visual only world of the electronic of electronic media. Um, so we get a high level of uh, dopamine, but we don't get that other critical component, which is oxytocin. Oxytocin is the cuddle hormone, it's the connection hormone, it's what we feel when we laugh with people, when we experience love with people. Like after you come and you're like, with, you're embracing a real live lover and you feel connected and you feel like, or even when you watch, look at a cat photo, that's one of the tricks. Uh, like if you uh, are experiencing that oxytocin, uh, you feel satiated. You feel good. When you have that oxytocin flood, you don't need to fuck for a while because like your your chemical reward system is telling you, all right, you did a good job. You not only sought the pleasure, you also potentially inseminated uh, a mate, right? We need that entire chemical cocktail to feel good, which is why a lot of guys, if they, if they either jerk off to porn 
or they have sex in a meaningless way, like where, they, where they're using their partner's body to masturbate, don't give a shit. After you come, you feel kind of empty. You feel kind of shitty. Um, you know, in, in, this, in the masculine undergrad group, we talk about ejaculation and when it's okay and arousal control a lot, of course. Um, but I, there's a difference between coming in a way that you feel satiated and coming in a way that you feel empty. The emptiness almost always is a sign that you didn't get the oxytocin reward that is necessary for you to feel complete as a person. So you end up, it's like, the, it's the hungry ghost idea from addiction where like um, you're filling this, this uh, stomach but it's never getting full. There's no solidity in it because you're not getting the oxytocin. Uh, because for men, orgasm is an eraser. It's uh, we, we tip, like anyone driven by testosterone has this kind of primal urge or this existential urge, we could call it to reach completeness, right? I'd say it goes back down to our, our sexual reward system. We're trying to get to this point where like we did all the struggle, we earned the thing, we, we killed the invader, we hunted the lion, we earned the mate, we made love to her, we had sex with her, we inseminated her. And then at that point, your, your body's like, good job. Sleep easy now. Whereas if you jerk off to porn, your, your dopamine reward system is like, okay, great. But your oxytocin reward system is like, yeah, but we didn't really we didn't really do it. It's like you're not eating the banana that has all the nutrients. You're just getting the glucose, which is spiking your blood sugar without giving you that sati satiation, which is why you can almost endlessly eat donuts, but you will never endlessly eat bananas because at some point you're going to be like, I'm sick of bananas. I'm done. Um, so one of the simple tactics here to, and I'd say this is one of the reasons why the orgasm meditation practice got a lot, it took away a lot of the urge for guys to masturbate is that it gave such an oxytocin flood. You don't need to join a sex cult to have that though. Anything that gives you the experience of a connection will satiate that need. If you're, if you're jerking off to porn too much, you can just assume that you are starving for oxytocin. I would make that my, if I, I was addicted to porn or jerking off too much, uh, I would make it my point for a period of time to seek out as much oxytocin as possible from laughing with people, from being vulnerable with people, from making eye contact with people, from uh, touching people in a non-sexual way, like giving real hugs. Those things can fill up your empty cup. So if your dopamine levels are up here and your dopamine receptors are like overly active, they're getting so stimulated and your oxytocin is down here, at least you can start to fill up to at least reach that something close to even because they're supposed to happen together and eventually you'll start to notice the compulsion to like get another hit might go away. I, I think it would go away because what oxytocin does and on a greater level is reconnects you to the superorganism. We're not meant to be this isolated pod, not knowing our meaning in life. We're supposed to be connected to something, something greater than us that makes us feel like, okay, I'm in ice, I'm a pod, but I'm not isolated. I'm connected to this greater thing. And we're gonna talk about purpose in a second. Um, uh, let me see. Hold on. Did I miss something? Oh, and the other thing with porn specifically is because of this incomplete chemical cocktail, uh, it creates this uh, very negative imprinting in younger guys. If you've jerked off to porn for years before seeing a live vagina, this affects you. I'm sorry. It's not, it's not a death sentence. You can get, go against this, but you might be imprinted in a way. And I hear this from guys slightly younger from me a lot where maybe they can have sex with a woman. I mean, a lot of guys have issues, right? Uh, premature ejaculation from porn, erectile dysfunction from porn, extra anxiety from porn. Um, but a lot of guys uh, I've heard will be like, okay, I can have sex with a woman. I can have sex with my girlfriend. It's great, but I can't finish inside of her. I need to pull out and jerk off with my hand, which is a ridiculous thing if you think about imprinting. Like you're telling me that 
a real human vagina, which has evolved for millions of years to perfectly fit your penis, that has evolved for millions of years to perfectly fit a vagina, a vagina is not good enough for you. That's some really fucked up shit that people have, a lot of guys have become more conditioned to their hand or to this money shot because they've seen it in porn so many times as opposed to the real human anatomy that's meant for this experience. Uh, yeah, anyway. I could rant on it more, but I think you got the point. So the filling the oxytocin need connects with the uh, superorganism, and this can be done in a few ways. I'm going to talk about specifics, but overall, vulnerability, anything, anytime that anything that feels vulnerable is almost certainly releasing oxytocin, whether it's like telling the truth to someone, telling the truth again, turns up the fidelity on your reality. The more precise you can be with someone, uh, you know, whether it's sharing something that's scary or looking someone in the eye and saying, hey, I think you're really beautiful. And like being specific about it, I really love this, turns up the precision on reality and makes it feel more real. Like, you know, these moments that you, you talk about real shit, time slows down. It feels like you're experiencing more life in those same number of minutes. Uh, I don't know about the, I don't know the hormonal reasons. I would guess that oxytocin has something to do with this. Or, or, you know, something's going on with our neurotransmitters when you take LSD, when you take psilocybin, when you're making love in a way that is like really tuned in and really there with the person, you experience more life in that amount of time than if you were just watching Netflix. You just, you're walking around doing nothing, seems like the day flew by and you did nothing. Um, vulnerable truths do this for you. Vulnerable truths release oxytocin and connect you. When we're open, when we're vulnerable, we're able to connect to the larger piece as opposed to being closed and we're obviously all isolated, potentially cancerous cells in the superorganism of society. And this is also, you know, um, the, the key to the difference as far as like a dating thing, this is the difference between being seen and connectable and being creepy. Men who are vulnerable with their truth, even if it's something lustful, like I want to have sex with you, is never seen as creepy. Not to say that it is not gonna it's gonna get accepted i mean if you say i want to have sex with you to someone who doesn't want to have sex with you she might reject you she might be like oh no thanks you know but if you say it real you say it with realness and vulnerability it's not gonna be seen as creepy creepy is when you're looking at someone and thinking oh, i want to fuck her i want to jerk off to her later but i'm going to act like i just want to ask you about the time right that that falseness of that that hiding behavior that is what's seen as creepy when a woman says a guy is creepy it's because she senses he wants something that he's not saying that's what's creepy. Um, and you can't, you can't ever get what you want or be met by other people or met by reality if you want to take it slightly spiritually. You can't be met by reality unless you're willing to show, here's my, here's my keyhole. You can fit the, or uh, here's my key. Let's see what, what keyholes fit. If you're pretending to be something else, if you're looking at women and thinking, I want to jerk, I'm going to jerk off to her later and not tell her what I think or, or not like look at her in a way that lets her know I actually am interested in her. Um, you are turning down the fidelity of your reality. You're also making it harder for you to connect to the superorganism, which would give you the oxytocin and uh, disincentivize compulsive behavior, whether it's jerking off or drinking. Same thing with like substance abuse. I don't want to speak about it specifically because that can be a more complex subject or one that I don't know as much about. But same principles. Anyone in 12-step, anyone in addiction recovery will note that isolation causes, uh, causes compulsive behavior, causes addictive behavior. Um, resentment is the thing that they talk about in AA a lot, like going against, you know, getting, releasing your resentment. What does resentment do is when you're, when your resentment is when you're replaying a feeling that was meant for like some other situation, like you're thinking like, fuck that guy. You're thinking, 
oh, I really regret this. Like you're constantly replaying this feeling that should have happened a while ago. When you're, when you're living in that emotional reality where you're replaying an old feeling, whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter. You're not in the current reality with everyone else. So obviously you're isolating. You're slowly uh, becoming separate from the world. That's what becomes delusions. It also, like when you feel by yourself and like you're in this resentful reality where it's just you against the world, it's like you're by yourself in your reality. We talked about this in the episode on Reality Doms. You're by yourself. It's one of the most terrifying experiences. So of course you're going to be more likely to self-medicate to not feel alone. Um, and that could be done by jerking off to porn until you're dead. It could be from drinking too much until you're dead. So you don't have to, you're turning down the fidelity of reality. So everything becomes super fuzzy. So you don't have to recognize the fact that you're by yourself. Obviously this by yourselfness is perceptive, but it doesn't mean it's not real. It's very real in our experience. Um, we'll talk about personal mythology in a bit. Uh, the other thing is, uh, relating to the super organism. And I think this is like, I don't want to say this is specific to men, but it's definitely uh, more related to the masculine side of the psyche. Women have one too, the testosterone-driven side of the psyche, which is uh, finding that greater purpose. Um, I know I'm going to speak about it more specifically in a second because I know this can seem like a general self-help thing or like you're like, how do I find this? Um, but just for the principle, uh, the androgen receptors, the testosterone receptors in our nervous system thrive on the perception of being useful or the, the perception of conquering uh, testosterone gives us the ability to conquer opposing forces gives us the ability to conquer challenges whether they're physical challenges by making our muscles stronger um, or mental challenges by giving us confidence you inject testosterone into a man woman or child it will come more focused and more determined to accomplish the thing that they feel is important there's a thing called the winner effect which i speak about a lot uh, I'm going to talk about the winter effect in a second, but actually I want to read a quote by um, William Burroughs, famous writer from the Beat Generation, uh, who's also in the punk rock generation, which I've been reading about a lot. And uh, he, he wrote this famous book called Junkie about his experiences with heroin addiction. Right in the first chapter, he says, you become an addict because you do not have strong, made of, <clears throat> excuse me, you become an addict because you do not have strong motivations in any other direction. He cites the fact that he didn't know what he wanted so he had this impulse to do something and he didn't know what he wanted. So he ended up, he, he was born rich actually. So he didn't have, he didn't have to work for himself. He found heroin as, as a way to have some purpose to earn more money and challenge himself to grow. And he, he does say that heroin forced him to grow in many ways. Uh, he needed this thing to force him to grow because he had no other outlet. So he picked this thing that happened to be pretty self-destructive. It did get him, he did like, launch his career, but I think it's probably not the way that people want. And uh, this is also one of the reasons we caught the episode we had with John Gray from Men of From Mars, Women From Venus. One of his biggest tips to women is to notice and appreciate the things that men do. Why? Because uh, the we, people are quick to judge the male ego. It's like, oh, the male ego needs praise. I mean, everyone likes praise. But the male psyche needs to know that his efforts is useful to the greater good. Otherwise, he's going to use his efforts for destruction. Like the, the male, like if, we have, if you think of like we have this internal axe that we need to swing, it could be either used for chopping trees or if there's no trees to chop, if there's no houses to build, we're going we're gonna to cleave heads. It's just like this impulse has to be fulfilled in some way. And I would say, you know, back to our desire model of addiction, porn is one way. It's like I got I to gotta pursue sex. I got to fuck something. There's nothing available because I'm, I'm afraid or I'm like living in this bubble. Well, porn's available, but it only fulfills us halfway. All right, we got some comments. Uh, someone said, hey, thanks for the love. Uh, 
what stuck, I'm reading the comment, um, what stuck out to me the most was this need for oxytocin. I'm experiencing it when I'm having fun with a woman. Sex isn't the primary driving force, give or take, and the lust dissolves and becomes something more. Yeah, and I would say, you know, lust is great. I'm not saying lust is not good. The dopamine reward system is just as important. You should be seeking pleasure. You should be seeking adventure. This is also why porn is so, uh, sorry, um, video games is so addicting because, you know, porn gives us the sex uh, reward. Video games gives us the sense of adventure that uh, anyone who's driven by testosterone needs adventure. We need life novelty to feel like we're doing something important. Uh, humans... There's a lot of evidence that humans are exogamous species, meaning that we're supposed to live in, in tribes, but it's the males usually, I mean, not, not, not historically, but uh, pre-agriculture, pre-civilization, it was the males that left the tribe and went on an adventure to find females in other tribes, right? Because you can't, you can't keep banging your cousins, right? Uh, go out to other tribes to um, find new mates. And like we have this in ourselves where we want to see new stuff. We want to tackle the elements. We want to challenge things. Uh, all, all traditional rites of passage showed young boys that they can do this. They can challenge the elements. They can get on a boat and travel the world. You know, women obviously have an impulse to do that too, but it is something that is, um, yeah, it, it's, it's uh, tied to our androgen receptors, our testosterone reward systems. Um, so I do think it is a way that men uh, access a greater part of themselves. Like on a biological level, you increase your testosterone, you increase your dopamine in a healthy way, you feel better, you feel more confident, you feel less likely to cause damaging uh, experiences. Someone dropped an LOL, I think it's probably to bang in your cousins. I'm not sure. There's a slight delay on this. Um, let me see, did I miss anything on porn? Okay, I do want to speak on the winner effect. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to end with uh, the specific tips. I have five specific actions, but the winner effect is related to all of this. Um, I've spoken about this before. It was in uh, the book, The Virility Paradox, whose uh, author, we had a great podcast. I think it was last summer. It's like episode 30 something, if you want to check out that on the podcast. Speak about the winner effect, which is a biological phenomenon where when a person perceives that they want a challenge, their, their testosterone spikes up and their dopamine spikes up, right? Two pleasurable things. Um, it's called the winner effect because it was found that when even fans of a sport, like let's say you're watching a football game and your team wins, you feel good because you're, you've attached meaning to the Jets winning, which never happens, but yeah, I know. Anyway, the Jets winning and um, you, you make yourself uh, decide that that's, what's a good, that's a good outcome. You've subjectively decided the Jets winning means something to you. When the Jets win, you feel really good. Your testosterone actually goes up, your dopamine gets up. And uh, the most interesting thing about this to me is that not only does your testosterone spike, you actually grow more androgen receptors in your brain, which means if testosterone is the key and the androgen receptor is the lock, that once the key fits, uh, it opens up the effects, right? You feel stronger, your muscles uh, grow, you feel more confident, you get more energy. Um, men are more affected by testosterone, men are more masculine because we physically have more androgen receptors. Or I should say more specifically, any human being who has masculine traits or things like winning or in competition drive them more than others, they probably have more androgen receptors in their nervous system. So the presence of testosterone has a greater effect, which means, and this is the quote I love from Charles Ryan, who wrote the book, success breeds success on a molecular level, right? We all know like, oh yeah, winning is good, you know, habits are great, but no, actually in your body, if you perceive, if you do something that you, th you have decided is winning, is a good thing to do, 
your body produces more testosterone and you actually have a greater effect. So the next time you win, it feels even better. The next time you win, it feels even better. And, and like every time you do something, you become a little more confident. Like this is actually changing your nervous system, which I think is important to recognize um, because on one hand, if you're in a rut where you're jerking off to porn too much, or you're a bit being lazy, you can be like, I mean, it's a very, it's, it can be like spiritually almost hard to think, how could I do things any other way? But if you know the biology, even conceptually of like, oh, if I do this other thing, I'm actually changing my nervous system so that next time I do it, it becomes easier and more rewarding. It becomes a little simpler way to look at behavioral change. And you could actually, you actually literally become more of a man by doing this. You actually increase your testosterone and increase the effects of testosterone. So you're literally becoming more masculine on a biological level. Um, and this is also, uh, you know, you know, I'm not meaning that's a plug, but in the masculine archetype challenge, one third of the lessons are all based on trying to hack the winner effect, giving you doable challenges so that when you do them, you feel good, even in a small way, because the next challenge becomes easier and the next challenge becomes easier. One of the, um, the very first winner challenge I have comes on day three. And, uh, I had, it's like, it's a self-directed challenge. So, right. Like it's not something that's impossible. In fact, each person is supposed to decide what is their level of challenge. And I had this thought because, you know, it's, it comes in automated, you know, you get automated uh, messages every day for your challenge. Um, and uh, I had this thought like after that, I better send an email to people saying that if you failed, don't get hard on yourself. Because there's also something on the flip side called the loser effect. Whereas if you uh, perceive that you lost, and this is why I stopped watching football because the Jets kept losing and I just kept feeling shitty. If you, if you perceive that you lost, uh, it actually depresses your testosterone, and over time, you, your androgen receptors will atrophy, which makes sense on a which makes sense on an evolutionary level because if you're constantly losing and constantly feeling bad, your body's going to be like, "Oh shit, we don't want to keep feeling bad. Let's remove the the, the keyholes. Let's remove those things that are going to make us feel bad, so we don't feel bad anymore." So then, like a guy who loses a lot when he's young grows up as an adult, and he doesn't have a competitive edge. Why? Because his body felt the pain of losing so much that he didn't get to, he doesn't want to care about winning anymore, which is the source of apathy, right? Like if you're feeling apathetic, it's because you um, are afraid of winning and losing, which is what care, the opposite of apathy is giving a shit, right? Like if you give a shit, you, whether something is a success or failure matters to you, right? So it means you can experience the high of victory, you can experience the low of defeat. If you're expecting defeat, you're going to stop giving a shit about games and stop placing subjective meaning on things. Uh, because you don't want to feel the experience of losing so that the rewards of winning also reduce. You're actually removing fidelity from your reality. You're removing meaning. You're, you're diluting the, the meaning and the actions you're doing. So what happens? You become apathetic. You become nihilistic. You're like, nothing matters. Let me just jerk off to porn and let me just drink. Let me just watch more Netflix. None of this shit matters because you don't want to experience the, the fear of defeat. Um, but you need it. You need it to live this life. You only have, you know, whatever your beliefs on reality are, you only have this one permutation where you get to live this life in this way. You might as well go for broke, right? There's the man in the arena quote. Maybe I'll read it at the end because I love that quote. Um, brings tears to my eyes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll read it at the end. Meaningful is subjective, which means that what you choose as a win is completely up to you. Um, you know, it, it, the winner effect is um, in effect even when you watch football. Uh, so it can be anything that you choose uh, to put meaning on. All right, so I'm going to go into the, top, the five tips I have. We're going to close out. I'm going to read the quote, I guess. 
First thing, and this is the thing that I'm critical of in NoFap, and this is the thing, you know, when guys are shaming themselves in the masculine underground group, I'm trying to like remind them, don't do this, is because shame, and we talked about this in the shame episode, check that out if you want to listen about the psychology of shame, but shame disconnects you from the whole. Shame makes you want to punish yourself even more because if you're saying like, oh, you fucked up, of course you want to make your life even worse, turn your fidelity down. The worst thing you can do um, and I don't even like that in the nofap communities, they, they call it relapsing. I understand like relapsing is an important term in, when it comes to substance abuse. And there are addictive models that are useful when, when dealing with porn addiction or, or non-substance abuse. But to constantly call things relapsing gives you this idea. It's like it just embeds shame into you of like, fuck, I relapse. Like, oh, yeah, I've got all these nofap guys like trying to go like 90 days without jerking off, which is not a bad thing. But then they fuck up, their compulsive behavior wins one day, maybe they have a hard day at work, maybe they have a fight with their girlfriend, maybe they're mad at the world, they're frustrated, the compulsive behavior takes over, they jerk off to porn, whatever, it happened. The, that's not great, but the worst thing is when they start being like, fuck, I'm a loser, like, fuck, I messed up my day count, fuck you, fuck you, fuck, like, they're saying all this negative shit to themselves, which only encourages them to, like, to punish themselves more. If you're calling yourself an asshole, I talked about this in the shame. You're actually disconnecting from yourself. You're actually like yelling at yourself. But so of course, that part of you now that feels shitty, that inner animal inside of you that now feels shitty because not only do they perceive shame from the world, they're also shame, uh, per perceiving shame from yourself, from your own ego. Of course, it's going to be compelled to jerk off to porn again or to drink again. Or to like in that moment of like, you're like, you know what? I should go for the oxytocin reward. I should do the esteemable thing rather than jerk off. That compulsion will take over because you've shamed yourself. You've when you shame yourself, you're training yourself to not do what you want, right? So do not shame yourself. The thing is, and I talk about this in like the self-love episodes, even when you fuck up, not to say that you should make up, you should like be like, oh, it's okay to fuck up. No, no, fucking up is not good, but you got to tell yourself, all right, you fucked up, but I'm still here for yourself. Like I'm still with you. We can still do this. The fuck ups are going to happen. In fact, whenever a guy... If I'm coaching a guy and he's telling me about like, I'm going to do this for 30 days, I'm going to accomplish this. I just remind them gently, like, that's great. It's a great goal. I want you to do that. But if at some point you do mess up, let's just expect that it's going to happen at some point and, and, and put in a game plan for what you're going to do when things mess up or when things go awry. I think, and I think this is a, um, an element of participation trophy culture. It affects my generation and guys younger than me. Cause like a lot of, I mean, I hear this from my older female friends. Uh, there's a difference between dating millennials and older people. Male millennials, I hear, I've heard this from so many, and I'm a male millennial, so I'm not like shit talking. Uh, male millennials have this tendency to give up quickly. And I've heard this from a lot of women. Like, yeah, it's like you can't play hard to get with younger guys. I, women have told me this. You can't play hard to get with younger guys because if they get negative feedback, they give up immediately. And I think this comes to the participation trophy culture where we didn't get to experience winning and losing for real when we were young. So that when we are experiencing failure, it's such a big burden and we get the loser effect or if we feel shitty and we give up quickly. Uh, you know, a lot of men experience that. Um, and if it comes from shaming, if you shame yourself, you're going to give up right away because what does shame say? It's like, of course you fucked up. You're good for nothing. So never, never shame. Uh, and I want to speak about this on the, on the um, neural circuit level. Uh, in the Prometheus Rising episode, I talked about the four, uh, the first four levels of uh, behavioral circuits based on Timothy Leary's model. The first circuit 
um, I won't go over it again, but the first circuit is the survival circuit, right? It's where we, it's what we develop in infancy, where we, where we go into helpless mode and need someone to take care of us. It's not a bad circuit. It was, it was very important for us to feel that way when we were babies. And it's important for us to feel that way at times. Like it's, it's good to be vulnerable. It's, it's good to allow people to help you. It's, it's good to be receptive at times. Um, but any, anytime you're experiencing that kind of compulsive behavior, you've dropped down into the first circuit. You've dropped down into probably anxiety. Anxiety is a first circuit emotion where you're like, I feel helpless. I can't meet the challenges. You're, you're actually acting like a baby who's on his back and can't move. And, and that's why you're, you're seeking something to, to comfort you, um, whether it's something on a screen, whether uh, cigarettes are, are one of the prime things because the, 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 the survival circuit is also the oral circuit. Like when we're infants, the only thing we're aware of is like sucking for mommy's breast. So we seek things to put in our mouth often, or we seek things in that like digestive chain, which I would say includes the sexual organs. We don't have to go too deep into that. But basically that, that need, that, that impulse to seek something to make us feel good from the outside is what we do as infants. We're, we're following our pattern as infants to seek mommy, to seek a substance, breast milk, to make us feel better, um, which is what we end up doing with uh, porn or any compulsive behavior, any version of laziness where you, you do something to fulfill that helplessness need is what you're doing in, in addiction mode. Because that first circuit, the infant circuit, and the second circuit, which is the toddler circuit, uh, they are homeostatic circuits. Those two circuits we have in common with almost every animal, definitely every mammal. Uh, dogs don't think about their goals, right? Dogs think about how can I go back to feeling good, whether it's um, feeling good in the pack or feeling good like, like a dog, when a dog has a, an opportunity for food, that's all it cares about, right? Just wants to get that food. That's that first circuit running. When all you can think about is jerking off to porn, all you can think about is drinking or doing the thing that's not, or stuffing your face with sugar, like that is you on your first circuit, your primal infant circuit thinking, I need something to self-soothe. I need something to medicate myself so I don't have to feel shitty about whatever's stressing me out. Shame will only put you back into that. That's one, yeah. Um, because basically what we're seeking when we're seeking you know, that substance when we're seeking porn, it's to reach that zero state, which is not a bad state, right? Like after a guy orgasms, if he got the oxytocin dump, he should feel that zero state where he's like, all right, I feel, I feel kind of dead. You know, I just came, but I feel accomplished. As opposed to the zero state where you jerk off to porn or you get hammered where you're like, I feel a zero state, but it's like, I really want to just get back into the womb and hide in my mommy's belly as opposed to, I just fucked a woman or I just made love to a woman. And like, it was awesome. It was great. Those are the, that's the difference between that experience because the, the male drive to experience zero state is, is not a bad drive. It's, it's the void. It's, it's, it's why guys can zone out and focus on a thing uh, that's meaningful. Testosterone helps us focus. There's all these studies about how the reason that it's like a Camille Paglia quote, you don't have a female Mozart because you don't have a female Jack the Ripper. Kind of a controversial, controversial quote, but what she's pointing at is, only people driven by testosterone get insanely obsessed. And that obsession can happen on something terrible like serial killing, or it can be obsessed on something beautiful like music. Uh, but that obsession, if you're a testosterone-driven individual, your, your uh, impulse to obsession is natural and it should be, it should be explored. You know, uh, one of the best books on masculinity is not a book on masculinity at all. It's a productivity book called The One Thing. It's simply about how your brain functions better on focusing on one thing. Everyone's brain functions better on focusing on one thing. 
because our work, our work part of the psyche is the testosterone part of a psyche, even for women who are successful and obviously can do, you know, very productive things in the world. That's still their testosterone uh, part of their psyche that's being rewarded when they do work. The winter effect works on women as well. And that uh, testosterone has us focus on things, right? So the more you focus on things, the more you're actually expressing your masculinity as opposed to like dabbling in everything. If you just think about like the dilettante who dabbles in a middle million things but never focuses, you can almost imagine he's probably an effeminate guy because um, there's something about focus, right? Picking something. You have to be willing to collapse the wave function of all of your interests and pick something that's worth digging in deep. That's the penetrative focus of testosterone. That's the first thing. All right, so I went off on a bit of a tangent, but the, the never shame yourself. Right? You fuck up, get back on the horse and be like, all right, we fucked up, but I got your back. We knew it was going to happen periodically, but I still love you. Let's do this. That, that kind of self-talk is critical um, because you can, put, you can put yourself in a Groundhog Day cycle where you keep telling yourself, I'm going to stop jerking off and I jerk off again if you keep shaming yourself or any negative, negative pattern. Second thing is uh, related is uh, recognizing that we practice our emotions. This is something that was in um, Mark Lewis's book, The Biology of Desire. Uh, you can check out that podcast. Um, we actually, again, just like our, you know, the winter effect affects our nervous systems. When we experience an emotion over and over again, it becomes myelinated in our brain, which basically means uh, it becomes a, a more efficient pathway. So if you experience a lot of grief, grief when you're a child, you're more prone to grief. If you experience, if you grew up laughing a lot, you're probably a lot more quick to laugh, right? It's not like you run out of laughter. It's like, no, the more you laugh, the more you can laugh. The more you think negatively, the more you are prone to thinking negatively. We literally practice our emotions in the sense that we actually change our brains the more we practice a certain emotion. So most people in, with substance addiction, it has been noted that there's probably something in their childhood that had them practice the emotion that kind of matches up with taking heroin or drinking too much or anything like that. They're, they're seeking something that depresses the nervous system because something happened to them repeatedly probably as a child that depressed their nervous system so it feels... It feels normal. It feels safe. That that first circuit when they're feeling anxious wants to bring them back to something that feels familiar. And even if it's shitty, this happens in relationship patterns too, right? If you date the same same type of terrible person over and over again, there's probably some emotion that they give you that feels normal, even if it doesn't even if it doesn't feel good. So you revert to that. Um, so recognizing that once one when you're feeling anxious, you cannot trust your thoughts. A lot of people think that their thoughts are independent, but actually when you're when you're when you drop down to that anxiety level of experience, that, that infant level of consciousness, you'll still think, right? Because it's not like your brain turns off, but your thinking is now being driven by that more primal circuit. So you cannot trust your thoughts, right? If you're thinking like, and I'll speak for myself, like I was, uh, I told us in the beginning of the episode, I spoke about my like, um, my existential acid trip on like, how do I want to put myself out into the world? When I'm in that mode, I need to remind myself that when I start to think these anxious thoughts of, oh my God, I'm, I'm selling out, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, do not trust those thoughts. Trust your thoughts when you feel good. But, when, but when, you're, when, you're feeling those, like, when you're feeling anxious, everything you think, you have to think, it's like I, I ingested a poison, this poison of anxiety, is putting these bad thoughts in my head. Do not trust those thoughts because if you, if you indulge those thoughts, you end up practicing that emotion, you increase your shame, and you, you practice the behavior that leads you to doing the thing you don't want to do whether it's uh, you know, not following through on your goals or jerking off to porn or anything. Um, two, so, so two specific things to practice is practicing the idea of resilience. 
So uh, one of the best ways of looking at this, the most useful, comes from Carolyn Elliott, who's been on the podcast. I didn't mean to plug so many episodes this this uh, this episode, but a lot of these topics have been explored in different ways by other people who I've had on the podcast. She has this idea of existential kink, which the gist is when you're experiencing a negative experience or negative emotion, see how you can get off on it. I mean, like, see how you can like indulge in the feeling or the the moment of your life story, which I know seems super counterintuitive and. Um, like, he's like, what does this have to do with resilience? If I'm doing this shitty behavior, why should I get off on it? It's like, no, there's something, if you look at your life as a mythology, which relates to the next tip, you look at your life as a story, every moment in the story is a chapter that matters, right? If you were all winning, 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 awesome, 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 everything's amazing, that's a pretty boring story, right? In moments of doubt, in moments of insecurity, those are some of your most beautiful moments if you can let yourself move through it. What's not so beautiful is like, when you're feeling anxiety, when you're feeling a compulsive behavior go on and you're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you're fighting it. So you end up being stuck in it. Like the, the guy who's like, this is, I don't know why I came up with this thing was for myself. I've been working on a book for a long time. Anyway, this is the guy who like never finishes his book. That's a boring story. The guy who struggles with his book, fights the good fight with his book and then finally finishes it. That's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story because he suffered, right? We love stories where we see people suffer and then overcome it because it reminds us that Everything is overcomable and it makes the story interesting. So practicing resilience to me means even when you're in your shittiest moments, your biggest failures, whatever, you're like, I'm, I'm in this. Like I'm getting off on the story of this. I'm going to find the deep-rooted, unconscious, perhaps dark joy of being a brooding, lonely guy, of, of drinking. T- I, I'll tell you, like I sp- said this before, like in periods of my life where I drank too much and I was basically being like a, a good-for-nothing not that I ever want to live that way again, but I look back at that time as kind of a romantic time because it, it it forced me down into like a dark night of the soul where I, I got to recognize things about myself that I don't look at when I'm when things are going well. But if I had just been like, I'm gonna just live in this no, low fidelity reality, I'm gonna keep hating myself, I'm gonna keep drinking too much, I would have stayed that way. I would still be a drunk in Queens. We're going to the same bar, doing the same bullshit, jerking off too much. All those behaviors go together because I was shaming myself. I was stuck as opposed to dropping to the bottom, forcing yourself to a rock bottom, and then letting yourself move through the, the, the story. The second emotion to practice is integrity. I spoke about this in the, in the Dark Masculine episode. Um, integrity is a testosterone-driven trait. I won't explain culturally why it was created, but um, when you make promises specifically to yourself, integrity, I will say this for a bit just for context, Integrity evolved in masculine culture to give men specifically, especially in times where there weren't laws to control people or governments as much, um, where you have all these guys walking around with their clubs, their battle axes, who can like crush each other, destroy each other. There had to be some mythology in, in, in specifically, I mean, for anyone, but male minds, men who can like destroy each other or rape women and children, guys who can physically do harm. There needed to be a mythology incepted into males so that even when no one is looking, even when they're not being policed by another guy with a bigger club, they will do what's right. So this culture of honor developed in masculine culture to get guys to do the right thing when no one's looking. That's what integrity is. The greatest integrity is integrity you have for yourself where you say you're going to do something and you do it. Which means in order to hack the winter effect, right? Don't promise yourself the moon when you, if you think about it, it's like, you know what? I've never gone to the gym 10 days straight in a row. Let me not promise that because I'm only going to set myself up for disappointment. Do the thing, take the day at a time, 
align or do the thing that you know to just the tiny habit that you know is going to be a locked up win. There's like no way I'm going to fail that because you will feel better. You will change your nervous system. And on a, on, a, on a more mental level, you will recognize to yourself, hey, I actually do what I, I say I'm going to do. And that will reinforce itself and make you feel better and reduce the shame that's going to cause you to do compulsive behavior. Also, most things that you would promise yourself, even if they're selfish things like, oh, I'm going to talk to a woman today. You do it. You're, you are benefiting society in some subconscious external way there is some externality where you are benefiting society by doing that right like no one says to myself i'm gonna go out and punch people in the face right like any promise you make to yourself even if it's selfish probably has some positive externality on society and it will connect you to the greater whole of the superorganism that is humanity and not feel have you feel isolated and jerk off to porn by yourself or whatever your thing is uh i reference i i'm gonna get to the last three things um i'm gonna skip I'm going to switch. It doesn't matter. You don't know what my paper says. Um, one is finding that specific reference group that matches your reality. So one of the problems with modern life is that we are not born into tribes of people we're related to. We're not born into a small group of people where we know everyone and there's already an existing mythology. There are, there's, a, there's a lot of beauty in that because each one of us, because we have the internet, because we can travel all over the world, we can, where we can find anyone who matches our interests, we can create our own personal mythology and see who matches that. In, in a tribal, in tribes, one of the negatives of tribes was that if a kid grows up and he's like, I want to be a painter, right? I want to be a cave painter, whatever, it doesn't matter. And his, and his tribe says, we don't believe in painting. Everyone needs to just dig holes, whatever. He's going to feel oppressed. We talked about this in the shame episode because the collective reality doesn't match his personal reality. In modern times, because of the internet, Unless you have a really, really particularly weird thing, like you want to eat babies or something, if you have like a kind of, you have a desire that other people have, you can find your tribe that normalizes your desire so you don't have to feel oppressed by the collective and you can be with people. This is critical if you feel alone or if you feel like everyone around you doesn't match up or you feel like you're the crazy one. You need to go out and find people that match your reality. If you can't find them physically, listen to the people that, that do. I mean, I listen to the podcasts and watch the YouTube channels of people that match the reality that I believe in, not because I'm trying to live in an echo chamber, but because I want to normalize what I think is right. We always revert to our sense of normal, and our sense of normal largely comes from people outside. Even if you're the only one fighting the good fight, you're like, you know, everyone's crazy but me. It's really hard to live in that reality because you're by yourself. Um, one of the, the biggest tips I give young guys, or really any, any, any person, I shouldn't say, it's not even real, uh, related to age or gender, but I think it's particularly common for younger men, um, is this need to go on an adventure and recreate themselves. Everyone has this, but like the need to like leave. I think the exogamous thing of like to leave your homeland, I think that is uh, more related to the androgen symptom. That could be a cultural thing. I'm happy to, you know, I don't, I don't know that for sure. It's just my thought. But uh, guys have a, like, this urge to go on adventures. And the, the biggest advice I give people, younger guys, especially if they're trapped in a small town, especially if they're working a job where everyone is low, low frequency, low, uh, low fidelity, and they're boring, and they're doing boring things and conventional shit, it's very hard to grow in a, real, in a, in a reference group like that. So I tell guys all the time, if, if, not to say that you should shit on your friends or to you know, say fuck you to your family. I'm not saying that. Although if you have an Asian household, you might need to create that separation because they're Asian, Asian uh, brainwashing is very, uh, very strong. Christian brainwashing too is very strong. You might need to separate physically for a while. 
I tell guys all the time, you got to change your environment. I, I've, I've been coaching this guy uh, who's been wanting to be a, a life coach. He's been wanting to basically do a version of what I do. And to him, it seems so crazy because everyone he knows works these nine to five jobs. So for him to like leave, even though I laid it out to him, it's like, it's not financially irresponsible. You'll actually be saving money if you go somewhere else. I mean, I had all these like practical reasons, but his fear is so locked up. Why? Because everyone he knows would think it's crazy and that feels normal to him. Even though his inner truth is, I need to go travel the world and do this thing that's true to me. Same thing, every guy who lives in a small town, it's like, dude, the biggest thing you can do is leave your town for a while. Go anywhere else. Go find people that resonate with you because then what you think is right will feel more normal just because it's confirmed externally from your reality. That will become your new normal. You won't feel like isolating and you won't feel those compulsive behaviors that would have you do things that are not good for you. You need to normalize your chosen reality. And that also, of course, gives you the oxytocin feeling of like, I'm not by myself. I'm with people. I'm with, and this is the whole thing with, um, the whole thing with, uh, you've probably heard this adage, your income is the average of your five closest friends. The reason why this is, even though it's not probably literally true, but it's probably close to observably true a lot, is that um, if you're with a bunch of people that are, you know, big hitters in the world, like they're they're moving things, they're 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 creating businesses, they're doing whatever it is, they're they're dating a lot, they're being with people, they you know, they're they're having adventures in the world, and that is what you observe. That will feel so normal to you that you'll naturally do it. You might not even realize it. Um, whereas if everyone you know is, I mean, is, uh, is, is doing low vibe things, that becomes what you revert to. Recently, I was talking to this young kid. He just got out of college. He's been frustrated. He reached out to me because he wants to have a better dating life. He wants to live a better life. And he's talking to me about his friend group in his small town. And he's like, yeah, they never want to do anything cool. And I'm like, well, what do you want to do? Like, what are the adventures you want to have? He's like, yeah, you know, I just want to go out camping. I'm like, dude, that's your thing? Like, that's the thing you want to do that you can't get your friends to do? Your friends won't even go camping? They just want to play video games every night? You got to get out because if he just got out of his town and went to somewhere else where there's like-minded individuals, he realized camping is such a small, I mean, I, I teased him a lot, like camping is such a small desire. It's not even his real desire. His real desire is to go out have an adventure and be with amazing women and, and uh, find beautiful things and have a job that's actually fulfilling um, not camping, right? Not this one, but camping. But he has bigger desires, but it was so hard for him to think in a way that is normal to myself or maybe normal to anyone else who's not in a small town reality because his reality was that of everyone everyone just works at the factory and uh, watches Netflix all day. That was his normal. And that's what... So like in order to get out of that reality, in order to not feel alone in that reality, you got to find the easiest... Not that you have to, but the easiest thing is to confirm the reality you want with other people. And if you don't have an opportunity to do that by physically moving your location and being your, and making new friends, a good place to start are listening to the people that you actually want to listen to. The information, if you are going to stare at screens, the information that you take in, you have to be very selective because even if you think, oh, I'm listening to this person complain about blah, blah, blah. I'm not taking it on. I'm actually being like, that's crazy that they keep caring about this thing. It's still, it's still getting into your subconscious. It's still creating your level of normal where you think you'll, you'll be more prone to complain about the same bullshit because it just seems normal to you. A lot of our perceptions are not self-directed. Even if you're like this super enlightened, super powerful mind, your inner perceptions are still largely affected by other people. We are social animals. We're not meant to live in isolation. It's a consumerist uh, myth that we're supposed to be by ourselves and have everything for ourselves. It's a very um, unhealthy and unnatural way to live. Anyway, okay, last two things. Next thing I just mentioned, I mentioned a little bit earlier, 
related to finding your reality, related to pick, picking your wins, picking your uh, practicing resilience, living your life story, is that exactly creating your own personal mythology. I read this great post about personal mythologies and accessing your own archetypes. I, I'm, I might have the, the author of that article on the podcast to talk about it, but I don't want to. Basically, the idea is like creating your own meaning of life. Again, we're not born into society, into tribes that already have a mythology and religion, typically, right? You might be born into a religion, but like you can leave, right? We have the internet. You can listen to this podcast. You can think for yourself. You can listen to other people. You can choose what reality you want to live in. And you have to because nothing is being forced on you anymore or it's very easy to see multiple points of view, which is a beautiful thing. But you need to pick what is resonant to you, even if you hold true to the very healthy worldview of like, Oh, there's many ways of looking at life and they're all valid in their own. I mean, most of them are valid in their own way on different levels. That's good to have as a perspective, but you got to pick what's your own meaning. Otherwise, you're going to be a nihilist. If you don't give a shit about anything, if nothing, if no wins or losses matter to you, then what, why do anything? Why not just jerk off to porn all day? Why not drink? Why not watch Netflix and do nothing all day if you've never picked anything that's meaningful to you, which is why the hero's journey stories are so big these days like marvel is cashing in marvel movies are cashing in with the same exact script every fucking time they follow the same exact plot points down to the minute if you if you watch a if you watch a marvel movie on netflix and you notice like okay at eight minutes they do this at at, at 20 minutes they talk about this you'll see it's exactly the same in every marvel movie why is this boring ass script uh, entertaining to us because so many people are lacking in their own internal hero's journey because they're living these low fidelity lives because they're not finding their own personal mythology. So seeing the same mythology and superheroes over and over again feels good because they have nothing else. Create your own meaning of life. Create your own choice of what struggle matters to you, which starts with what are my selfish desires? You got to start with yourself, right? Because if you're not full, you can't be your own hero. Um, deciding how you want to move your own story forward. But at some point that will eventually put you up on a, on a threshold where you either can keep following yourself for desire, that's like the dark side, the Sith Lord, or you can take that impulse, you can take everything you learn to become whole in yourself, to heal your initial pain point, whether it's loneliness or not dating well or heartbreak or divorce, I was I lost all one, or like frustration with your career, or like things not moving forward, or constant failure in business, or getting rejected in life, uh, whatever you needed to heal that part of yourself sufficiently enough to move past it, at some point, you'll have that choice to go to the dark side, or take those tools and make them about other people. And like every healthy hero's mythology eventually has to have that moment. If it's a hero mythology, right? If it's an anti-hero mythology, like in Breaking Bad, he went the other way, right? Breaking Bad, he had this beautiful goal of like, I want to make enough money so my family is not, uh, is not impoverished when I die of cancer. But then at some point he made the choice of like, I'm going to keep taking this power for myself and end up becoming a, a domestic terrorist as opposed to, I'm going to take this virtue, this like hero's growth I had and become the hero by helping everyone. No, he became the anti-hero by doing a lot of harm. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why we're drawn to, I think men specifically are drawn to the anti-hero's journey, like Fight Club, like Breaking Bad, because that is a high level, even though it's a negative reality, is a very high fidelity reality to start a Fight Club. It's a very high fidelity reality to become a drug kingpin, because even though you're not living in a virtuous way that's helpful, it is high fidelity that you're living, like Walter White was living intensely, right? He was going all the way into a certain reality and exhibiting 
uh, effects of testosterone, right? Focus, drive, determination, dominance in a bad way, but still is in a way, right? Not saying that you should become a drug lord, but you can take those same virtues and put into something meaningful in your life journey that hopefully will benefit other people and connect you to the greater good. It'll give you oxytocin, not have you isolate and do fucked up shit. Create your own personal mythology. And finally, the last one. I talked about this a lot, but I want to, to uh, repeat it, which is hacking the winner effect. I, I, I'm ending on this because I want to re-stress the importance of picking things that matter and doing them, even if they're small. You are literally changing your nervous system. You're literally giving yourself a boost in testosterone and making your next boost of testosterone more effective. You keep practicing these small wins, it becomes easier and easier and your effects become greater and greater. Um, and it comes down to, I can't read what I wrote here. Must have, I don't know if it's important, but I, um, it comes down to those moments where you're like, okay, I could jerk off. I, I feel stressed about work. I could go home and jerk off right now. I could numb myself out and go to a level of zero that doesn't really feel good, but it's a level of zero. It'll relieve my pain. It'll turn down, it'll make my reality lower fidelity, make everything fuzzy so I don't have to deal with my shit for a moment. Um, you could do that. In that moment, the greatest win would be to choose groundedness. And it doesn't, in order to do this effectively and sustainably, you can't just do it from a mental level, right? You can't just force yourself because if you fail yourself, if you only do it mentally, it's very easy to fail yourself and it's very easy to replace it with shame. It's like, ah, oh, fuck, I jerked off. I, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. Um, instead, in that moment, and I, I'm trying to say this slow. So if in that, when you're in that moment, you remember my words, there is a way to experience the joy of feeling whatever you're feeling. It relates to getting off on it, but feeling the joy of like, all right, I'm at my computer. I could type in Pornhub. Maybe I've typed it into my browser. I haven't hit click yet. Or I want, I'm saying this, I'm, I'm illustrating this because I want you to really remember my voice when you're in this moment, whether, whether it's porn or whatever. I could click. I could click and put myself down that, that hole. But in that moment, I'm not telling you you don't have to click. I'm not going to force you to do anything. But I want you to at least notice in that moment, you could experience the joy of feeling your body. It might not feel like joy because it might be an uncomfortable like a feeling you want to like jerk off and get rid of. But like you could feel it and you could experience the joy of feeling energy, feeling the, the sensations of having a body. And if you just try to notice the feeling, you might notice that the feeling that you were perceiving anxiety is just a sensation. And if you simply notice it, and if you're listening right now, you can even do this with whatever you're feeling in your body right now. If you notice the feeling of gravity, right? Even if you're numb to the world, even if you're so apathetic that you can't feel your body, you can at least feel the pull of gravity on your body, right? If you can notice the pull of gravity on your body, you'll recognize that it's just a sensation. It might even feel good, right? You might not think of gravity as pleasurable necessarily. It's not as pleasurable as sex, right? Uh, but it is a sensation that is pleasurable in itself. The thing that you might have been perceiving as anxiety can have a pleasurable feeling. It feels good to feel this way. And then just before you click on Pornhub or before you take the shot or before you do whatever, think for a moment, is it worth it giving up this feeling of vitality? This moment of just noticing what you feel is the key to groundedness, right? If I can feel my body around myself and notice that there is a, a mild pleasure in simply being able to feel whatever I'm experiencing, that in itself can be a positive sensation. And do I want to give this up? 
right? Because the other thing is, if you take the, if you make that winning decision, that courageous decision to not empty out your feelings and hold on to it, the next time it becomes a little bit more pleasurable. The next time it becomes a little bit more pleasurable. The next time, this is this is the uh, God mode that people talk about when they go a long period of time without jerking off. It's like. Even if you don't practice arousal control, even if you don't do the things that would have you circulate it in your body, if you can simply just like enjoy the feeling of it, feeling in your body, that in itself is aliveness. That is the opposite of apathy. That's the opposite of nihilism. It's like you start to feel, you just start to feel your reality more. And what you will notice at some point, here's the, the second confrontational piece after you decided not to jerk off or empty out your feelings, there'll be a point where that a level of aliveness that has turned up the fidelity inside of you where you're noticing things for real and you're like, oh shit, I don't want to do this right now. I really want to do this thing that I've been avoiding, even though it's scary. I, it's like this feeling in me is like forcing me to recognize in high definition, this is the thing that's actually going to feel good. And in that moment, it becomes very hard to kid yourself. That's the second moment that's going to be very tempting to reduce your reality's fidelity, to jerk off, to bring yourself down to a, a fake zero because you don't want to deal with it. But if you, if you can hold on to that, you'll recognize again, it's just a sensation. It might even be a pleasurable sensation. It might actually feel good to do the thing you're avoiding rather than force yourself to do it. It might actually just be pleasurable in itself to notice how your body feels when you, you work on the thing. You notice how your body feels when you talk to the person that is scary to, when you put out the thing that's vulnerable to, to express, when you record the podcast that you maybe felt nervous about. You do this, it feels good to your body and the next time will be so much easier because you can remember, you know what? Doing the thing I want to do felt way better than jerking off. I don't care how many tabs you have open. It is, it is a very small thing in comparison to actually doing the thing that is right by you. The joy of groundedness. Uh, unless there are any questions, I'm going to read this quote, Man in the Arena, which you may have heard before, but I love it. One of those things, I was noticing, uh, I don't get emotional. I've been through a couple breakups in quarantine. I feel bad. I mean, I don't even have to get into that. The things that make me emotional tend to be things like about fighting the good fight. I don't know why I don't get emotional about many other things, but I get emotional about stuff like this. Uh, this is a quote by Theodore Roosevelt. Man in the Arena is an excerpt from a greater speech called The Citizen and Republic, but this is the quote that everyone knows. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best in the end, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Do not be that cold and timid soul who does not put himself in the arena. Die valiantly if you're going to die. You will recover, I promise. And uh, I hope that this has been useful for anyone dealing with compulsive behavior, porn addiction, anything. Uh, so thanks for listening. Um, if you're listening on the podcast and you listen on iTunes, I appreciate it if you drop a review. 
um, episode 87 with Jeremy Lipkowitz on mindfulness and how he overcame compulsions through Buddhism comes out on Thursday. Check that out at podcast.rulando.com. The Archetype class is half off right now for the next two weeks while my website is being redone. That's at rwando.com slash archetype dash five zero. It's 49 bucks. It still comes with a coaching call. It's the cheapest way to work with me or have, you know, have a one-on-one with me. Um, a little bonus because things are kind of janky on my website. Uh, if you want to travel the world and have an adventure, I'll be in Georgia at least in August. Georgia the country, not Georgia the state. At least in August, if you want to come out, I'd be happy to hang out with you. Had great experiences when pe- listeners of the podcast came to hang out with me in Chiang Mai last fall. Um, and if you happen to have media skills and you're looking for a part-time job and you're interested in going to Georgia, hit me up. Instagram is probably the best way. You can also message me in the, in the Masculine Underground group um, because my associates and I are, are hiring someone specific. And um, again, thank you to everyone in the Masculine Underground group because this is what inspires me to keep making these. Unless there's a final question, I'm going to close this out. Going once, going twice. Goodbye. Oh,